You're listening to an audio sermon from Trinity Bible Chapel. For more information, please visit our website at trinitybiblechapel.ca. Turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 24, please. I'll read verse 15 through 22. As you're turning there, I note that there are terrible consequences and horrifying events that await those who reject Jesus Christ and his free offer of salvation. Those who reject his kingship and lordship over all. But for those who trust in him and take him at his word, there's great safety and there's great hope in the future. But terrible and horrific judgments await those who don't. And if we learn anything from our text today, it is the safety that lies in walking with Jesus by faith and the horror that awaits those who reject him. So, before I read, I ask you this question. Are you in Christ by faith? Or have you rejected him? Are you in Christ or outside of Christ? Are you in the kingdom of God and hail Jesus as king? Are you, or have you rejected his kingship over the earth and over your life? Because the answer to that question determines whether you will be subjected to the horrifying judgments of God or the bliss of eternal glory. So choose wisely. And if you have rejected Christ, if you're not in him and a subject of his kingly rule, I invite you today to come to Jesus. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and receive him by faith that you might be saved of his horrifying judgments. You might receive the forgiveness of sins And you might have life everlasting. Matthew 24, verse 15. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house, and let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant, and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath, for then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days are cut short. Please bow with me for a word of prayer. O Father in heaven, we pray and ask that... We we intercede, God, really, for those among us who stand condemned under the horrifying judgments of God. And all of us, Father, intercede on their behalf and pray that they would enter the kingdom of God by faith today. They would see these horrifying warnings in your word and they would fly to Jesus Christ and be saved, find safety in his promises and in his word, in his protection. O dear God in heaven, please guide the preached word. Be with me as I preach. Strengthen me. Help all those who listen to discern. That would the Spirit of God move among us in power. Amen. So this is a contested portion of Scripture, as you likely know. And it's also a section of Scripture that lends itself to be heavy on the teaching side. 
So as far as the balance and the scales go, there'll be more teaching than there is application. And so I'm going to actually spend the majority of my sermon developing the text and explaining the text, and I won't really hit application until the very end of the sermon. So it will be fairly heavy on the teaching side. Now many come to this text, and as I've noted already, and get caught up in sensational speculation with end times frenzy. But it's important that we come to the text and let the text teach us. We don't come to the text to teach the text what it says. The text teaches us what it says. Some have given me reasons why it says such and such. I've seen reasons why it says such and such. For example, the great tribulation will last seven years and it will be preceded by a pre-tribulational rapture. But typically, I haven't, well, really, I haven't seen anything that indicates that has anything to do with the text. So if you want to send me an email about this text and why it indicates there's a pre-tribulational rapture that will f- be followed by seven years of tribulation, then please go right ahead, but make sure you show me what the scriptures say and not just what you think they say. And that would be my challenge for you. I'd gladly receive it, but I want to see what the scriptures say. From what I've seen, the reasons have nothing if little to do with this text at hand, or if any text at all. This text, very clearly from its context, is not referring to a future tribulation that the church is yet to experience. It was referring to a tribulation that the church was to experience during the time of the disciples. So for the disciples, it is prophecy. For us, it is fulfilled prophecy. For the disciples, it is prophecy. For us, it is fulfilled prophecy. It predicts, our text predicts, what will immediately precede the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. It predicts what immediately will happen before the temple is destroyed, leading up to that terrible day when it was destroyed in 70 A.D. So I'll give you a bit of a history lesson today. For Christ's disciples, it was prophecy. For us, it is fulfilled prophecy, and it was fulfilled in the generation of the disciples. Christ prophesied events that would lead up to the destruction of Jerusalem, and when those events took place, he commanded the disciples to get out of Jerusalem. Leave. Don't go back. Don't turn back. Don't look back. Don't think of going back. Listen and remember the words of Jesus, and get out of Jerusalem Because if you don't get out of Jerusalem, it's going to be too late for you. That's what the text tells us. For the disciples, it was a prophecy that was fulfilled in their lifetime. And when they saw it fulfilled, that was an indicator that they must depart Jerusalem as quickly as possible. I'll explain why I believe this before I start wading into the text verse by verse. The whole discussion of today's text and what occurred before it, as we've observed, the whole discussion is precipitated by Christ's declaration in verse 2 that the temple will be destroyed. That precipitates a question from the disciples about the timing of these things. And then Jesus walks into or wades into what it's going to look like increasingly leading up to the destruction of the temple. Verses 4 through 8 
speak of the, the times tottering leading up to the destruction of the temple. See in verse 6, it says, but the end is not yet. Verse 9 through 14 speaks to the persecution that the church of Jesus Christ will experience leading up to the destruction of the temple. As we know in verse 13, it says, endure to the end, insinuating that the end is not yet. And then verse 14 tells us the gospel will be proclaimed throughout the known world or the Roman Empire. And then in verse 14, once that happens, once all of these things happen, the world totters, the disciples are persecuted, and the gospel of the kingdom is proclaimed throughout the Roman Empire. Once that happens, then the end will come. The text gives us every reason to indicate that the end will come shortly after all of those things take place. And in this case, the end is referring to the end of this era, the end of the era of the temple, when the temple will be destroyed. So then Jesus says, this, all of this, what I've just said, is I'm trying to explain why this is speaking specifically to the end of the temple and the destruction of the temple and the events leading up to the destruction of the temple. All of that that I just noted, the end is not yet, and the one who endures to the end will be saved, and then the end will come. All of that leads into verse 15. So look at how verse 15 says, So, now what's that so being derived from? Or it can be translated, therefore, when these things happen, the end is not yet, verse 6, endures to the end, verse 13, then the kingdom is preached, the gospel of the kingdom is preached throughout the Roman Empire or throughout the known world, as I explained what that word means last week. Then the end will come. Then it will come. So when you see, knowing that the end is imminent, so that when you see, this is the beginning of the end, the abomination of the desolation, of desolation. That is the beginning of the end. And Jesus continues in this text today, as he does right up into verse 33 and 34, speaking directly to the disciples about what they will see and what they will experience. Verse 4, he refers to them as you. Verse 6, twice, he refers to them as you. Verse 9, three times, refers to them as you. Verse 15, again, so when you see, so remember this is a teaching time with the disciples in front of them. They've come to him quietly, and he's talking to them about the destruction of the temple. So when you see, verse 15, the abomination of desolation. And verse 20, very similarly, pray that your flight, whose flight? Not our flight. Your flight, speaking directly to the disciples. And of course, all of this occurs within the broader context of Jesus predicting since chapter 21 that Jerusalem will be destroyed. It all occurs within the broader context of Jesus predicting since chapter 21 that Jerusalem will be destroyed. And then in verse 34, what does it say? If you look all the way down, we'll eventually get to that text if you're patient with me. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. In other words, what Jesus is speaking of up until this point will experience and see all of these things that he's talking about, this generation. Our text today, actually, if you look at it very carefully and if you if you're slowly digest it, you'll notice that it is specifically for those who are in Judea. It's not for the whole worldwide church. Verse 16 says, Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. And then even in verse 17, it assumes the flat rooftops that they had in Judea so that if you're on top of your roof where they used to lounge... Don't go down. Just get out of the city. And history indicates, by the way, 
as I'll explain this morning, that we see all of these things unfold leading up to 70 A.D. The record of history indicates that all of these things played out leading up to 70 A.D. So there's a whole bunch of reasons why I believe that this is a prophecy for the disciples. It's history for us. This is a prophecy that the disciples saw fulfilled. From our perspective, it's history that has been fulfilled. Okay? Now, some will object to that, and they'll say, well, there's, there's a double fulfillment to this. It was fulfilled in 70 AD, and there's yet another fulfillment to come. The problem is that it doesn't say that. Nowhere does it say that in the text that there's a double fulfillment. Now, does God work in ways that are typical? Does history sometimes repeat itself, but never the same ways? Sure. There's certain patterns and judgments of God, but this text, you might be able to extract patterns from God's judgment and the way things play out throughout history. Most definitely, I think you can. But this text specifically, if you want to talk about it specifically, in the exact events that are unfold, is talking about, and there's nowhere in the text does it indicate there's a double meaning here, is talking about the flight from Jerusalem just prior to the destruction of Jerusalem. And the flight from Jerusalem is to take place after seeing the abomination of desolation. Then you flee, then Jerusalem's destroyed. That's how it goes. This is a localized tribulation culminating in God's wrath on Jerusalem in 70 AD. So I hope I've been clear about that. I hope I've been clear. In fact, Charles Spurgeon said this portion of our Savior's words appears to relate solely to the destruction of Jerusalem. So I obviously concur. But moving on, I'll, I'll outline how I'm going to approach this now that I've kind of giving you a cursory view of the text and why I'm interpreting it and understanding it the way I have. And here's my outline this morning for the rest of the message. We're going to see a, the first event. There's two events in our text. The first event, the arrival of the abomination. Then, the action required of the disciples, which is urgent flight, once they see the abomination. And then three, the second event, which is the great tribulation. So that's the flow of the text. The first event, the arrival of the abomination. This is what the disciples are to look out for. The second event, the urgent flight. An action required. And the third, so first event, arrival of the abomination, second point, sorry, the action required of the disciples, which is urgent flight, and then what happens after the urgent flight is the great tribulation. The abomination, the flight, the tribulation. One, two, three. I hope I'm clear about the outline. So let's look at the first portion of this text, which describes the first event which is the arrival of the abomination. The arrival of the abomination. This is what many get caught up on, and hopefully I can provide some light on the text today. It's, it's important to note as we get into this first section again, what is Jesus' concern for his disciples? It's not sensational speculation about end times. Even as things start to get a little more sensational, as he describes what's going to unfold, his purpose is not sensational speculation about end times that will sell books and make good movies. His purpose is to prepare the disciples for survival. The chips are going to fall, and then they're going to really fall. And this is how you're going to survive. It's how your families are going to survive. It's how your churches are going to survive. And so his concern in this is preparing the disciples for what's about to happen. 
in their lifetime. And we see this arrival of an abomination that precipitates his commandment to flee. So the abomination comes, and then when they see him come, they flee. But let's talk about the abomination of desolation. Verse 15, so when you see, they will see this, the disciples, you, see the abomination of desolation. This is an event. They will see this in Jerusalem. And an abomination, as you look at the Bible, is something that is repulsive, sacrilegious, blasphemous, and desecrates a sacred space or something sacred. This is an abomination. Certain things in the Bible are called an abomination. Ezekiel chapter 5, verse 11 calls idol worship, blasphemous images, abominations. 1 Kings chapter 11, verses 5 and 7 likewise refer to Idol worship, false worship is an abomination. So that should be a hint to us. Desolation is that which, obviously, that which causes, leaves things desolate. That which destroys things. And so this is something repulsive, sacrilegious, Something that desecrates the holy is in false worship that leaves destruction or brings destruction. The abomination that causes desolation. This is an event. When you see the abomination that causes desolation, something that is blasphemous that leaves destruction. And where will you see him but in the holy place or the holy location, the holy place or the holy location. Now, the holy place or the holy location could refer to the temple, or it could refer to Jerusalem in general. In Zechariah chapter 2, verse 12, actually, it refers to Jerusalem and Judah is the Holy Land. Okay. So, as you're thinking about the abomination of desolation arriving in the holy place, it could be the temple or it could be Jerusalem, one or the other. But this is something that is idolatrous and blasphemous that is leaving destruction in a sacred place, temple or Jerusalem. And it entails an invading army. This is where the destruction comes in. Thankfully, the Bible interprets itself because we are left with other texts that help us understand the texts of Scripture that we have. And in Luke chapter 21, verse 20 through 21, we have the same discourse of Jesus on the Mount of Olives, looking out on Jerusalem to his disciples, which actually sheds more light and provides more words and more context for us. And so in Luke 21, verse 20, as he's talking to the disciples, Luke records more for us that helps us understand this text. He says, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. And so whereas Matthew refers to the abomination of desolation as recorded into the book of Daniel, Matthew is concerned more for the Jewish audience of Matthew. Luke speaks specifically of an invading army that surrounds Jerusalem. So the abomination of desolation is associated with an invading army because of the testimony of Luke's gospel. Now, we have something very helpful in that Matthew leaves us with the testimony of Daniel. Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. Daniel chapter 11, verse 31. And Daniel chapter 12, verse 11, each refer to the prophecy of the abomination of desolation. 
And the Jews in Christ's day actually had an historical event that they used to refer to the abomination of desolation. So as I'm trying to teach and explain what this abomination of desolation is in the holy place, I've already noted that it's something blasphemous. It's something that brings destruction. It's something that occurs in the holy place, and it pertains to an invading army. And then as we're trying to unearth more evidence as to what it is, Jesus gives a helpful reference to the book of Daniel, which refers to the abomination of desolation three times. And many of the Jews in Christ's day believed that the abomination of desolation occurred in 168 B.C. So they had a historical reference point as they were trying to understand this. And the historical reference point is that in 168 B.C., so 168 years before Christ, a man by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes conquered um, much of the world and wanted to destroy the Jews. And Antiochus Epiphanes took over the temple in 168 BC. He built an altar to the Greek god Zeus. He sacrificed pigs on it, and he turned the rooms of the temple into brothels. So he desecrated the temple. And, however, he wasn't successful because the Jews eventually routed him and chased him out of Jerusalem. So he had to cut and run. So the Jews historically would have referred to that or had a sense that that meant the abomination of desolation. But there's a slight problem in that, is that and that is that it didn't leave complete desolation on Jerusalem. It brought some desolation, but the desolation wasn't complete, whereas Jesus here is speaking of complete desolation. But that is a historical reference point for their interpretive grid. The event explains that Jesus means that the abomination of desolation in the holy place is something similar to what happened during the days of Antiochus Epiphanes when he erected the statue of Zeus or the worship of Zeus and the sacrifice of pigs in the Holy of Holies in the temple and turned the temple into a house of harlots, a brothel. So there's, there's a number of things that we can refer to as we're trying to understand this term. One is, abomination simply means that which is blasphemous. Desolation means it's destructive. Holy place means it could be in the temple or in Jerusalem. Luke chapter 21 tells us this pertains to an invading army. And the prophecy in Daniel, some of the Jews of Jesus' day would have seen that fulfilled in the days of Antiochus Epiphanes, 168 years before Christ, almost two centuries, two centuries prior to this statement by Christ, if he's speaking in 33 AD, so it would be about 200 years prior to Christ, would have seen this fulfilled in Antiochus Epiphanes, which brought, brought blasphemous activity in desecrating the temple with sacrifices of pigs to the Greek god Zeus and turning the temple into a brothel. And so all of these things you put together and you try to understand what this abomination of desolation is in the holy place that they're supposed to be looking for. And it would have been clear to them. They would have known what this means. And it would have been clear and they would have been on the lookout. It involves blasphemy in the temple and a foreign army. Or blasphemy in Jerusalem and a foreign army. One or the other. So let's go into a little historical lesson as we talk about this first event, the abomination of desolation. Let's, let's do a little bit of history here. What happened after Jesus said these things? So 33 years later, in A.D. 66, 33 years after he said this, in Matthew 24, in October of A.D. 66, the zealots, who were a group of Jews, basically terrorists, took over the temple and rebelled against Rome, and they took over the temple, and their rebellion against Roman rule invited the Jewish wars. The Jewish wars start to break out late in Nero's reign, and the zealots eventually take control of the temple, which leads to November, a month later, the Roman army surrounding Jerusalem, which carried the ensigns 
of the idolatrous representation of the Caesar. So you have the zealots taking over the temple in 66 AD, 33 years after Jesus says this. The zealots taking over the temple and the zealots rebelling against Rome and Jerusalem, leading to the Roman army surrounding Jerusalem, and the Roman army brought with it idolatrous ensigns. They brought with them idolatry. They were idolatrous people. They worshipped the Caesar. And they had images depicting the Caesar as one who should be worshipped. And sometime within that time frame, the zealots started desecrating the temple. So bad things started to happen. And the Jews perceived that event. Jesus' disciples perceived that event, which occurred 33 years after he said this, perceived that event is the abomination of desolation. We know that event took place from Scripture, or at least something like it took place from Scripture, because there is no more temple in Jerusalem, and this is speaking of the destruction of, of Jerusalem. So historically, that was the case, and we know that it would have taken place in Jesus' generation, or the generation that Jesus was speaking to. And then beyond that, the historical records that we're left with today indicate that in 66 AD, the zealots did take control of the temple, and the Roman army surrounded Jerusalem carrying idolatrous ensigns, ensigns, flags, pictures, whatever. This occurred in the Holy Land, and it occurred with idols, and it was recognized as the event that Jesus is referring to, the abomination of desolation. So you come to this text and everyone's like, well, it's pointing to what's the abomination of desolation? How are we going to know when we recognize it? What are we looking for, people? Do you want to know what you're looking for? Well, it's come and it's gone. And they saw it. And they recognized it because of all of the evidence that I just gave you. We know what the definition of an abomination is. We know what the definition of desolation is. We know what the holy place means. It either means the temple or Jerusalem. We know what Luke chapter 21 says, and it talks about an army invading Jerusalem or surrounding Jerusalem. And we know how the Jews would have perceived the interpretation of Daniel 9, Daniel 11, and Daniel 12 in the, in the event of Antiochus Epiphanes. And then we know that, that this was all fulfilled in the generation of Jesus Christ. And then the historical records that we're left with indicates that the Roman armies indeed did surround Jerusalem in A.D. 66, that the zealots took over the temple, and desecration began in the temple. And this is the event, the first event. The abomination of desolation comes, and interestingly enough, this is, I think this is very interesting, that this first invasion of Jerusalem, this first attempt of an invasion of Jerusalem in AD 66 was a failure. And for some reason, the Roman armies turned around and left which gave the Christians who were listening to the words of Jesus in Matthew 24 the opportunity to flee before the really bad stuff started, and they would have never gotten out. So those who listened to Jesus in Matthew 24 and recognized the abomination of desolation when the Roman army showed up and the zealots started doing their thing in the temple, those who recognized that left Jerusalem it gave them a little window to escape, to run to the hills, because once that window closed, Jerusalem was sealed off and there was no escape, which I'll explain shortly. But that's the event, the abomination. So I move on. And then we look at what is the action that is required of the disciples in this event. Some of you might be wondering when I'm going to get to some application. I'll get to that near the end of the sermon, but this is a text that's teaching us something here about how the Bible fulfills itself. But there's an action that's required of the Jews, or of the disciples of Jesus, these Jewish disciples of Christ, and that is urgent flight. They have to flee. The great tribulation of Jerusalem is at hand. Christ in A.D. 33 told them to flee when they witnessed the abomination of desolation. The abomination of desolation came in A.D. 66, and so when they saw that abomination of desolation, it says, so when you see it, so there's an action that's required. It's conditional upon them seeing this abomination of desolation. Verse 16, here's the action. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Get out. This is the action required upon 
visualization of the abomination of desolation. Get out of Jerusalem, get out of Judea. It's referring to a specific people. Those who are in Judea should flee. Fleeing is a commandment to get out. They are to get out to the mountains. It is reminiscent of when Lot escaped from Sodom and the angels told him to get out of Sodom. And what did he do? He left Sodom. And where did he flee? He fled to the mountains. And so part of this text, what it's indicating is that Jerusalem is about to become like Sodom. Do you remember that stinking ash heap where men carried out unnatural desires with men in that city of Sodom and God burned it to the ground. While you look back on that and what Jesus is telling the disciples in this text with the language he's giving them is that Jerusalem is about to become like Sodom and it's going to burn like Sodom. And what Jerusalem became even after the crucifixion of Christ is absolutely terrifying when you think of it in terms of the capability and extent of human depravity. Jerusalem is about to be reduced to Sodom, so get out of Jerusalem. The fleeing is for safety. It's urgent, by the way. In verse 17, he says, Let the one who is in the housetop not go down to take what is in his house, meaning leave your possessions behind. Don't take your stuff. In fact, some think that because Jerusalem on the outskirts of it would have had flat-roofed homes and the homes were very close together, the idea is, is that you're going to jump around across the rooftops and not even go downstairs until you're on the outside of the city and then get down and go. You're not even going to take the time to get down into the streets. You're going to jump across the rooftops. This is what a lot of people think this is referring to. But whatever you do, don't take your stuff because you need to get out quick. It's very urgent. Don't even take your cloak, Jesus says in verse 18, and let the one in the field not turn back to take his cloak. The idea is, is if you're out plowing in the field, you're working the field, your cloak might be back at the house on a hot day. The cloak was a very precious uh, garment to the point where in Exodus 22, you're not even allowed to sell your cloak or leave it as a pledge overnight because it's such a precious garment. But in this case, you leave your cloak behind in Jerusalem just like the Jews left their leaven behind in Egypt. Get out. Have no identity with that city. Take nothing with you out of that city. Whatever is left in that city is going to be reduced to ashes. Leave, 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 leave. Don't even look back. The urgency is heightened again as Jesus is telling them to get out of Jerusalem because he refers to the difficulty and the pain and the strain that will fall upon women who are pregnant and nursing in verse 19. And alas for the women who are pregnant and those who are nursing in those days, meaning that so hasty will be the flight and so challenging will be the flight that those who are with children will have extra difficulty. It will be very painful for them. And what are we reminded of? We're reminded of the women who were with the Jews, when they fled from Egypt and in one night they had to turn things around, could you imagine having a bunch of little children and having to get out of Egypt uh, when God gave the command within a few short hours? Boy, that would have been difficult. And so not even is Jerusalem become like Sodom, but Jerusalem has not just become like Sodom, Jerusalem has become like Egypt. A country that is deserving of destruction because of its wicked behavior and its idol worship and its rejection of God. This, is, this isn't just a warning. This is a pronouncement of what Jerusalem has become. Sodom and Egypt all in one city. Jesus says further, it's going to be difficult in verse um, 20, he says, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. The wintertime, the terrible weather would have been difficult with no supplies on the Sabbath. The Jews had regulations that prohibited them from traveling more than one or two miles. And anyone who was found to be traveling more than one or two miles would not have been allowed hospitality. So if you traveled far on the Sabbath, you wouldn't have been able to find hospitality. That evening, you wouldn't have been able to find someone who would feed you if it was on the Sabbath. So you would probably be hungry for at least a day and you wouldn't have a place to lay your head at night. So the prayer should have been that their flight does not take place in the winter because of the elements and that the prayer won't take place on the Sabbath because there will be a hindrance to finding food and shelter. The urgency is on par with when Lot left Sodom and Israel left 
Egypt. Jerusalem has become worse than Sodom and worse than Egypt, and God's people had better be ready for an exodus. There's a new exodus. And you're getting out of this wicked city because the city's about to burn. We have the first event, which is the arrival of the abomination. Then we have the action that is required, the urgent flight, because Jerusalem is going to be reduced to ashes like Sodom, and there's going to be an exodus because there's going to be judgment upon it like Egypt. Egypt and Sodom all come together for the most terrifying display of God's judgment on earth ever in the destruction of Jerusalem. And then finally, my last point is the second event, and that is the tribulation. Tribulation, the second event, the great tribulation, which is preceded by the abomination, which leads to the commandment to flee, which leads to the great tribulation. Boom, boom, boom. Verse 21, then, for then there will be. What does that will be happen? The great tribulation will come after the flight from Jerusalem, which comes after what? The abomination of desolation, which comes after what? The gospel going out to all the world, which comes after what? The persecutions, which comes during what? The tottering of the world. The tottering of the world and the persecutions come at once. Then comes the abomination of desolation. Then comes the flight. And then comes the great tribulation. Then, the second event, the great tribulation, the great tribulation in verse 21, where then there will be a great tribulation. Some people get caught up in that term. It simply is the Greek word um, thlipsis megale, and the, and the word occurs again in Acts chapter 7, verse 11, translated there, great affliction. It would be simply a term that is used to describe a great disaster. That's all it's referring to. But this is a terrible disaster because it says, in the same passage, for then there will be a great tribulation such as not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, not even will be. This is a pronouncement of very severe judgment. And in fact, it is the Old Testament language of judgment that is used at other events of judgment. So similar language is this, where it says such has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, never will be, is used of other events of judgment in the Old Testament. It's used of the judgment that came upon Jerusalem before Daniel chapter 9, verse 12, it re same type of language is used. It refers to the judgment upon Jerusalem in Joel chapter 2, verse 2. It refers to the judgment of Jerusalem in Ezekiel 5, verse 9. And it refers to the judgment on Egypt in Exodus chapter 11, verse 6. Now we have three images of Old Testament judgment that are popping up. One, Sodom. Two, Egypt. Three, Jerusalem, in the Old Testament, when the Babylonians came. All three of those are being piled on each other to describe this great cataclysmic event that is about to befall the Jews in Jerusalem. All of this comes together. You have a cauldron of judgment that is brewing. Verse 22 says, And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. For the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Those days could refer to everything from verse 4 onward, or they could refer to the Great Tribulation. It's quite difficult to tell, but enough, it can be, or, but enough can be derived from that text to indicate that God shortens judgment for the sake of His people. And wherever His people are, He is gracious to the rest of the community and the rest of the city for the sake of His people. So this is an urgent situation, and there's great judgment coming. And so now let's go into some history and explain what's going on. We have the abomination of desolation in A.D. 66, which leads to the departure around the same time, which leads to the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. So between the abomination of desolation, there's about four years between that and the destruction of Jerusalem. And it's literally hell on earth. Literally hell on earth is what descends upon Jerusalem in those four years. In AD 67, so a few months after the abomination of desolation arrived on the scene, the governor of, of Judea was captured in battle, and Jerusalem 
descended into civil war. The city itself, which was a walled city, descended into civil war with three warring factions. So remember what happened. AD 66, the Roman army shows up. For whatever reason, in God's providence, the Roman army turns around and leaves Jerusalem, which gives God's people, the Christians, who heard the words of Christ, an opportunity to flee from Jerusalem. And then after their opportunity to flee, that short window falls just a few months. In AD 67, the city descends into civil war with three warring factions. Complete anarchy breaks out. The government collapses completely. And the zealots seal the city off, believing that God will deliver them. And because they are zealous for their ill-founded eschatology of deliverance in this particular situation. They are zealous for it. They will not let anyone leave the city because they want everyone to experience the great deliverance that they suspect is coming, but by then it's too late because Jesus said leave. And so the zealots actually seal the city off when the government collapses. The historian Josephus said that Jerusalem became, this is when a few months of this, it became like a wild beast grown mad, which for the want of food from abroad fell now upon eating its own flesh. Picture a wild animal rolling around on the ground, starving, trying to eat itself. Some had stockpiled food in Jerusalem, but the scene was such that anyone who stockpiled food was quickly found out, and they were looted and murdered. They would actually, actually to the point where if they found a baby with a morsel of food in its mouth, they'd go into the home and they'd hang the baby upside down and shake the food out of its mouth just to get food. They're so desperate. The Romans record the instance of a woman eating her own baby. Some actually tried to flee Jerusalem. And as they fled Jerusalem, what they would do is they tried to hide their precious metals so they would swallow them. Well, the Arabs and the Samaritans found out that people were doing this. So when they, they fled from Jerusalem, what the Arabs and the Samaritans would do when they found someone who'd fled Jerusalem is they'd disembowel them to uncover their precious metals. So there was no getting out of Jerusalem. The zealots had sealed it off, and the Arabs and the Samaritans had decided that if you leave Jerusalem, they're going to disembowel you lest you have precious metals in your intestines, and they want the precious metals. In the winter of A.D. 67 to 68, the zealots who had seized the temple went on a murderous rampage and filled the temple courts with carcasses laying in pools of blood. In A.D. 69, Vespasian became the emperor of Rome, quelling the Roman civil war that had erupted after Nero had committed suicide earlier. And what Vespasian does in AD 69 is he makes it a priority. One of his first priorities as emperor is to send his son Titus into Jerusalem, commanding armies from Italy, Syria, Egypt, and Greece into Jerusalem to put an end to the rebellion and infighting and carnage that is unfolding in Jerusalem. So Vespasian's first priority after becoming an emperor and settling things down in the empire, having settled his own civil war down, is to send multiple armies under the command of his son Titus into Jerusalem to settle things down. April A.D. 70, the siege of Jerusalem begins, and the Romans torture any Jew who attempts to leave and escape the zealots on the inside. So the zealots on the inside are a bunch of murderous madmen, and they've sealed off the city. There's, we know that there were Samaritans and Arabs on the outside who were disemboweling them, and the Romans make it even more difficult to leave and say there's nobody leaving this city and anybody that leaves is executed. One historian says, Jerusalem became a cage of furious maniacs, a city resounding with howling and inhabited with cannibals, a very hell. You could imagine, it was terrible. July 17th, AD 70, the daily sacrifices forever cease in the temple. There's no more sacrifices after that day. And it never has been. That was it. August the 9th, A.D. 70, Titus, Vespasian's son, 
the general of the army, Vespasian being the emperor, enters the temple. He pillages the temple. They burn the temple. And he begins offering sacrifices to the Roman gods. So within two weeks of the Jewish sacrifices stopping, or three weeks, Titus starts offering sacrifices to the Roman gods in the temple. September 8th, A.D. 70, the city is taken. History records, Josephus records, that 1.1 million Jews were executed, many by crucifixion. They say they ran out of crosses to kill them, and they ran out of spaces to hang them on crosses. Isn't it something that the city that crucified Christ, for the most part, was crucified by the Romans, murdered? And thousands, about 20,000 maybe, were taken as slaves. When Jerusalem was taken, it is said that not a Christian was in it. Because after A.D. 66, when they saw the abomination of desolation, what did they do? They fled. They listened to the words of Jesus. And the words of Jesus during times of confusion are the only safe place to be. The only safe place to be. Not a Christian was left, they say. They weren't there when the zealots sealed the city in A.D. 67, and they weren't there when the Romans massacred the Jews in A.D. 70. They listened to the words of Jesus, and they kept them, and they got out. A few points of application. The Lord always delivers on his promise. In A.D. 33, when Jesus said these words in Matthew chapter 24, Jerusalem was peaceful. It would have seemed crazy to think about civil war descending upon the city and great massacres falling upon the city and armies invading the city. But within 35 years, the city descended into a literal hell. The Lord Jesus is faithful to his promise. He promised that judgment would come upon Jerusalem and judgment came upon Jerusalem, although it did not even seem feasible in AD 33. Within 35 years, it descended into hell. In times of confusion, the only safe place is obedience to Jesus Christ. By the way, in times of confusion and during all times, obedience to Jesus Christ is urgent, it's immediate, and it can be costly, but it will save you. Do you understand that? They had to leave everything behind and follow Jesus. They had to leave their homes behind. They had to leave their stuff behind. It was urgent. They couldn't go down from their houses. They couldn't go back to their houses. They had to get out of Jerusalem. It was painful. It was difficult for the women with children, the women who were pregnant. And if it was on a Sabbath, they wouldn't have been able to stay anywhere. And if it was in the winter, it would have been terrible weather. But it was worth it because they got out of Jerusalem before the wrath of God descended upon Jerusalem, before the city descended into a literal hell. It is always urgent to obey Jesus Christ, and his obedience should be immediate, even if it is costly. Imagine you were one of the people who tried to preserve your goods, and you did whatever you can. Well, we're just going to take our time to make sure you know, that, that everything's sold and taken care of, and we'll take our wheelbarrows of gold out with us. It's over. They had to leave, like Lot left Sodom. When it comes to obedience to Jesus Christ, it should be immediate. Absolutely immediate. And by the way, God's wrath upon nations and cities that intentionally reject Jesus Christ is severe, complete, and terrifying. And Jerusalem stands as an example and a warning to our own nation, which has intentionally rejected Jesus Christ. You think of our country as done. No, we are not Israel. Okay? No, we're not the second Israel as Canada. But this country has intentionally rejected Jesus Christ and celebrated, often in its own churches, that which is abominable. What we have done in this country is terrible and has invited the terrifying judgments of God. The intentional rejection of Jesus Christ and the celebration of blasphemy, even in its own churches. Acts of blasphemy in the church invite judgment upon the nation. This was precipitated by a blasphemous priesthood who rejected Jesus Christ and his kingship over the temple and then turned to crucify him. What happened a few weeks ago, you might have seen an article that I was quoted in with the United Church out in, in, uh, in uh, Manitoba. And what did they do? They let a woman commit suicide and they celebrated in the church. Right? Because that apparently was the compassionate thing 
to do. The churches that are celebrating sodomite marriages in their churches. The churches that are tolerating all manners of evil in our world today. The churches in the United States right now, and you see them in our own country too, that are proclaiming the so-called virtue of abortion, the slaughter of children. These churches are inviting terrible judgments of God, not only upon themselves, but upon their country. And the absence of God's people in a city could indicate imminent and final judgment upon the city. For example, Sodom, for example, Egypt, for example, Jerusalem. When God's people finally vacate a city, it invites terrible judgments upon the city. God waited till the last Christian was gone, and then the most terrifying judgments fall. And it could very well be the same for any city. I feel bad for people who are in cities in this country where they don't have good churches. It might be a wise decision to consider leaving that city and moving to a city where there is a good church. There's safety when you're with other Christians because the very presence of Christians turns away the wrath of God. So if you find a faithful church, stick with it. If you don't have one, find one. And if anything, this substantiates the claims of Christ. That the crucified Messiah, the city that crucified the Messiah would descend into this level of hell within 33 years tells us something about who Christ is. It's not a coincidence that the city that crucified Christ descended in the most into the most terrible of hell within a generation. This validates Christ's, Christ's declarations. The fact that temple worship and temple sacrifices have not occurred since then. Still, there's still no temple in Jerusalem. The fact that this has happened indicates the severity of Christ's judgment and the reality of Christ's claims. But the Jews still don't offer sacrifices in their temple. But if anything, what this text should tell us is that God himself, Christ himself, is a mountain of refuge. And something worse that happened to Jerusalem awaits those who reject Christ now. The city descended into hell, but there is a real hell that God has prepared for, his devil and angel, for the devil and his angels. And that real hell is worse than the hell that Jerusalem descended into. And that is what awaits those who reject Christ now. And the only hope for you is to urgently, immediately, and even if it's costly, flee to Jesus Christ the mountain of God. Run to Jesus. Run from the city that is burning with fire and sin. Run from all the abominations that are causing desolations in our own day. Forsake your sin and leave it behind and run to safety in the mountain that is Jesus Christ, the great rock of our refuge. Run to Christ. Little children, run to Jesus Christ. Drug addicts, leave your drugs and run to Jesus Christ. To the sexually immoral, to the, to the adulterers, to the fornicators, to all those who would practice wickedness, run to Jesus Christ. Don't stay where it burns. Go to Jesus. He's the only place to be. He's the only place of refuge. He's the only place where you can find safety. That is your only mountain of refuge. Some people say to me, how do I know when to flee to the mountains? Flee to the mountain right now and the mountain is God. Flee to him. You have nowhere else to go. The scriptures actually tell us that this entire world will be consumed with the fiery judgments of God upon those who do not repent. And the day to find refuge is right now. So go to Jesus. And why are you delaying? Don't waste another moment. Don't waste another day. It is urgent. It should be immediate. And even if it's costly and you have to leave things behind, so be it because it's all going to burn and you must fly to Jesus Christ. He's the only hope for the forgiveness of sins, the salvation of your soul. Fly to Jesus Christ. If you want to look at Jerusalem as an example, what you see in Jerusalem is what happens to people that don't fly to Jesus and don't obey his words. He told his people, flee when you see the abomination of desolation. And he tells you now today that today is the day of salvation. And repent while you still have breath in your lungs. Put your faith in Jesus Christ. Receive him as your savior and be born again. That is your only hope. There's no other way, my friends.
There's no other way except in Jesus Christ. Do not delay. The times are urgent. The times are needy. And if it's costly, so be it. Come to Jesus today. He offers you forgiveness. He offers you mercy. He offers you grace. And he offers you everlasting life. If our text teaches us anything, it is that Jesus Christ is the only safe place. And his words are the only safe words to obey. And we must heed his commandments and hear his warnings as quickly as possible because we do not know if we have another second. But Jesus says, come to me, all you who are willing, and I will give you rest. This is the message of our Savior. Come to Jesus and believe in him.